If racism and the idea of race is human-made or it made in the minds of people, constructed, I know this concept is, might be new or a new definition or a new understanding of race and racism, but I just want you to know, um, I understand it's new, but it's biblical. If you just look at the scripture, there's only one race. There's one race, and racism is a result of sin, depravity of man. So if racism and the idea of race is human-made or made in the minds of men or constructed, then racism and the idea of race can be unmade, decreated, deconstructed, or at least we can work against it. We could be anti racist. Now, we're just saying this song, right? I believe that God can move the mountains, right? He can more move them more than mountains, right? God defeated death. God was resurrected. He defeated, took on our sin. God can do this, and he will. We know he will. Racism, as all sin, has been overcome, and it will be vanished and vanquished. This is good news. And it is part of the work of God's people, the church, to be anti-racist, to deconstruct, to decorate race and racism. Right? Race as this social construct to create categories and system to place value economically, socially, spiritually, etc. based on skin tone needs to be undone. Racism, conscious and unconscious. Yes, it is unconscious. It's not subconscious. The psychological term, there's no such thing as subconscious. It's unconscious, not being aware of it. Unconscious bias created by systems and structural inequality created by people. You may or may not agree with those definitions, yet I'm asking you to hold on. These might not be full definitions as well. But it's a starting point for all of us. So if race and racism can be decreated, deconstructed, fought against, ultimately won, how do we as the church, the body of Christ, do that? How do we be anti-racist? We start by love. This shouldn't be shocking to you. This has been my talking point for the last couple of weeks, right? We are to be anti-racist by, by loving, by loving people, that we, we care about this issue. And I assume you do, that if you're here listening, if you're present here, that you do love, that you do love people, and that you love God. Love, love being this, the fulfillment of all of Scripture, of all the promises of God, of all the laws and the commandments, the ceremonial, the holiness, all being pointed to the fulfillment in Christ. Love. Loving God and love your neighbor. And neighbor being not just the people that look like you or act like you, but specifically that don't look like you. And don't act like you. And of course, Jesus expands the concept of neighbor to us, to even our enemies, to those that harm you. So if we are to be anti-racist, 
If we are to decrate racism, we need to love. If we are to be anti-racist, we need to learn. We need to learn. There's two parts of this. We need to learn to understand the biblical story and the purpose of God, first and foremost. So let's do that a little bit more. Let's dive into that a little bit more this morning. Last week, we learned that racism is a distortion of the true knowledge and the image of God. Right? So it's actively working against this concept, actively working against God is what racism is. Acting against his revelation of who he is and creating a God in our own image and not his image and his character. And so racism ultimately is idolatry and it is not Christian. And we learn that out of this idolatry and that it is pride, right, comes a multitude of vices, and one of those vices, greed, is a fuel, a catalyst for racism. Today, we're going to do a quick biblical survey on the purposes of God, of God's plan from the beginning for his people. So we're going to start in Acts. It's not the beginning, but we're going to start in Acts. Acts 17, 24 through 26. The God who made the world and everything in it. The God who's creator. Being Lord of heaven and earth. In charge of everything. Sovereign over everything. Does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands. As though he needed anything. I just love this, right? How it's like laying out who God is. Right? God is the creator of all things. He is sovereign over all things. And guess what? He doesn't need the praise and worship of humans. He wants it. He wants his people to love him, but he doesn't need it. He's not a needy God. And he doesn't need us to create anything for him. He's the creator. He is the creator. He's not served by us in any means. And it goes on. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Right? Since God himself is the one that gives all life to everything. And he made from one man Every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that God made one race, one people group. Period. This was his purpose. This was his plan. This is what God has done. We go to Genesis 1.28, and we learned a couple weeks ago, right? And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds of heavens and over all living things that move on the, ground, on the earth. The purpose of God creating us is to multiply his image, not ours. He says, go and multiply on the earth. Multiply my image, not yours. This is what we talk about in the Great Commission. This is what we are to do. We are to make people to be like Christ. 
to, to illustrate who Christ is in our life by our preaching and our actions. And the purpose of God revealing himself in general, in his creation, and in a special way, revealing exactly who he is through the person of Christ and in Scripture, is that all things glorify him. So our purpose is to multiply his image so God is glorified to the ends of the earth, which he is anyway, by the way, by the nature of this creation. But he's asking us, go and do this. This is your purpose. This is why I have created you. Multiply my image. Glorify me. Our role in this, God's revelation in this, and our, and our purpose in this, is to seek him. Learn about him. We learn about him in all of creation, but we learn primarily in scripture about him. And who this person is in the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And we also, our role in this God's revelation to others is to proclaim him, to preach him, to teach him, to multiply his image in our words and the way we live our life. But of course, as God has a plan at the beginning, sin enters in. And sin doesn't unite us. It divides us. Sin divides humanity against itself through war, hostility, through war and hostility towards God and war and hostility to others. Through racism. Sin distorts from the very beginning the true knowledge and image of God. Sin creates idolatry. Making God in our own image a.k.a. people that look like us. And then sin is in Scripture. And then we get to Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Even after God reboots humanity through Noah, right? And sin enters when? Once again. And then we get to Genesis 11, 1 through 9, the passage we read this morning. The Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. As people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinir and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they made brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and tower with its tops in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I mean, just pause. Did you hear all that? It is almost the exact opposite of the passage I just read in Acts. The exact opposite of the purpose and plan of God. Right? There is one race, there is one people, and their task is to multiply the image of God, to glorify God over the face of the earth. And they do the exact opposite. Instead of spreading, they congregate. Instead of multiplying God's image, they just said, we want to multiply our image, our name, our reputation. reputation. That is sin, idolatry, pride. They build up instead of going out. And then it comes in verse 5. 
and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now just pause for that. This doesn't mean they're like God or they can do anything. What he's really saying, look at Sin knows no bounds for them. They are incredible sinners. And look at what they're doing. They are, they are taking me and making something else. They're just pushing me aside. Their sin knows no bound. And it will only get worse the more they congregate together. So he says, come, let us go down and there and, there and confuse their language. So that they may not understand one another's speech. I just want you to understand, this isn't punishment, this is grace. This is grace. God's saying, listen, if I just let them be, their sin will just continue to spiral out of control. I'm going to spread them out. So they, they sin a little bit less. Or such, if that is even possible. So they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they, le- and they left left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language over all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Right? God condescends. He comes down. Just like he comes down in the person of Christ. Comes down, incarnates. There he issues a, a punishment, which is really a grace, just like at the garden, where it's get out of the garden, but it's actually a grace, so they don't live forever in sin. And then he forces them to spread out, which is what his purpose was them from the very beginning. They congregate it. He says, look, at my grace is I'm going to make you spread out. I'm going to make you spread out, even though you didn't want to, just like he commanded God doesn't create multiple races here. He creates multiple people groups by confusing the language. And he confuses their language to limit their sin. I just want you to hold on to that thought. People groups, nations, ethnicities are now spread out by God over the face of the earth. God wants one people group. He wants one people group to fill the earth with his image. And he still has that plan and purpose. But he has to go about a different way. And that way is through the redemption. What precedes this whole story, the story of Babylon, is a table of nations. A descendants of Noah. Of everything that's gone haywire after Noah. And the next time we see a table of nations in scripture is on the day of Pentecost. Hold on, we'll get there. But the very next thing in Scripture, after the Tower of Babel, God reveals his plans and promise to Abram. Genesis 12, 2-3. And I will make you a great nation, a great people group. And I, notice what God is doing here. And I will bless you and make your name great. They're not making their own name great. God is making their name great. So that you, this is what they do, you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. 
And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the people groups, all the whole world will be blessed through this one people group. Out of all the people groups, God created by his dysphoria, by spreading out people. God chose Abram, one person. Not based on Abram's merit. It's just based on God's seemingly random choice to us. And through this one person, in creating a people group out of him, of creating a nation out of him, all the nations, all the people groups will be blessed. And of course, that fulfillment, that promise is fulfilled in Christ. Notice it's not a, it's not a different race. God is already instituting his plan to reunite his people as to one people. The purpose that God chose Israel was not to set one nation above the others. It wasn't say, hey, look how great Israel is compared to the rest of you. In fact, if you read the story of Israel, you begin to see they're not so great. They're not really better than any of the other people groups. In fact, they might be a little worse. But God sets one people grew up to be a blessing, to be a witness, to be a testimony. Even all his laws and statues for that people group were to demonstrate God's character, to separate, look, this is who God is. And to draw people to God, not to that people group. Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 7. God says, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples who when they hear of these statues will say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Did you see that? The reason why God sets all these things up is so that they'll be a witness, they'll be a testimony, that they bring people back to who God is. Back to God. That's the purpose. That's the purpose of Israel. God's purpose is not to create race or racism, but to unite the human race for its true purpose, to multiply his image, to glorify him. Not to glorify ourselves. And then we get this promise in Zephaniah 3.9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Right? From all the different speeches or all the different language to a pure speech. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. One purpose. To multiply his image, and to glorify his name. And then we get to Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, of all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This purpose of us to write to go and multiply and to glorify his name. Jesus is uniting all people groups in him, through him, by him, and for him. 
for his glory and his image. That's the purpose of all of humanity. And then we come to the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, God coming down. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, every people group. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who were speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygra and Pamphylia and Egypt, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. You just see what just happened God just did there? It's the exact opposite of the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel, people gathered one language and tried to glorify their own name. They tried to stay put. And here God sets out his purpose. Comes down, they're divided tongues. He comes with one language miraculously and they all can understand in one, as Zephaniah would say, pure speech. And why? Because they're all glorifying the mighty works of God and not themselves. The purpose of humanity. One language. Tell people about God. And then we get to the very end in Revelation, right? Where we see this glorious image of God's people. This one humanity. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, every people group, from all the tribes, the peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Isn't that what just happened at Pentecost? All nations gathered together, all of them proclaiming the glory of God, the purpose of humanity, to multiply his image to the ends of the earth, to decreate racism, to destroy racism, to be anti-racist, we need to love. We need to love each other. We need to care about this issue. We need to love our neighbors. We need to love God. To decreate racism, to be anti-racist, we need to learn. We need to listen. First, we need to learn about the revelation of God, the purpose of God. We need to learn Scripture and God's purpose for all humanity. And then we need to learn 
about racism. We need to learn about the history of racism. This is the second part of learning here. We need to learn about the history of racism in our country. Racism in its current form we need to learn about. Now you may be tired or exhausted on this topic. You may be saying, Tracy, can you just move on and stop preaching about racism? No. Because there's some among us that can't move on. That some among us, whether we talk about it or not, have to deal with it every day and every moment. So I think for us that may be tired or want to move on or don't want to deal with it, tough. Learn to love. Learn to love that those that have to deal with it every day and every moment. Let's learn about racism. Because learning is about loving them. Learn. Make friends and relationships. But don't expect people of color to teach you. It's not their responsibility to teach you about racism or the history of racism or its current form of racism or how you are a racist. So we need to do some independent study. It means you need to do some homework. It means you need to care enough about this issue to do it, to read, to watch, read about the history. If, if racism is systemic, which it is, the history that you might have learned has probably shielded you from the whole history. So read. Learn. Read from Christians. I would say read from non-Christians. People that will challenge your presumptions of what you know. People that might even challenge your political opinions. Because racism isn't a political thing. It's a love thing. It's a God thing. Do some independent study. Read and watch. You can reach out to me, but I tell you what, I am not an expert. I will tell you what I'm reading and what I'm watching, and maybe you can join me in that. But read. Do some independent study. Do this because you love. You love God and you love others. Charlie Chaplin said in his autobiography, there is a little racial slang in here, but um, you'll understand when I said, one doesn't have to be a Jew to be anti-Nazi. All one has to be is a normal, decent human being. Actually, all one has to do is to love. Love God. One doesn't have to be a person of color to be anti-racist. But one can't be silent. One can't be naive. One can't be defensive. One can't be colorblind either. And one has to confess. One has to repent. And one has to stand up for each other. To be anti-racist, we need to love. We need to learn. We need to learn the scriptures. We need to learn the history. And the next step we need to do once we learn is we need to confess. 
And this is fundamental in our walk. This shouldn't be shocking to us. What? You're asking me to confess? Yeah, every day you wake up, you should be confronted with the truth of God and who you are, and you should be brought to your knees and confess. It shouldn't shock us. It's who we are. It's how we follow God. That's how we understand him. We confess to God and to each other. How have we consciously or unconsciously been complicit in racism or being racist ourselves? Conscious? So here's, here's the things that I, would, I need to start to confess. I confess that I have conscious bias towards people. I confess that I have ingrained unconscious bias towards people. Some of them I'm learning. I confess that I have been and that I am a racist. I confess that I have stood silent. I confess that I haven't stood up. I confess that I have remained blissfully naive and unaware. I confess, and I'm sorry. And there's probably more to confess. But as I learn, I will confess. Maybe, maybe you don't like that um, I called myself a racist. Maybe you don't like it that maybe that you're a racist. But here's the thing. You're a sinner. You're totally depraved. Why are you so afraid of the term that you're a racist? Why is that the thing? Like, hey, that's where I draw the line. I'm a sinner and I've sinned against God, but don't call me a racist. Why is that where you draw the line? Why is that where you're defensive about? It's like, that's the sin that God won't forgive? Listen, just add it to the list. To the, the multitude of lists that who you are. In John Perkins' book, he talks about this. He says, here's how we can begin to confess. Here's what he says for white people. We can confess our fear to be labeled as a racist. We can confess our fear of giving up power and status. Power and status that we feel that we might have earned, which you haven't. No one has. John Perkins says, for people of color to confess their fear that, that being anti-racist is hard work. It's hard work with usually nothing to show for it. But we believe that God can move mountains. We believe that God has overcome death. And we also know in our walk that God is a lot slower than we like him to be. God says the antidote, the antidote for our fear is love. Which is back to the beginning, right? Love. To be an anti-racist, you need to love. You need to learn scripture. You need to learn the history of racism. 
you need to learn about how you are a racist. How the world around you is racist. And you need to start confessing. 1 John 4, 18 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. By the way, who has perfect love? God. Who casts out fear? God. For fear has nothing to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So here's the good news. If you have fear, you're not finished yet. God is not finished with you. But he will finish you. Because once he starts something, Philippians 1.6, he will finish it. He will perfect you in love. And it brings us all back to the character of God and the purpose of God. The fulfillment of all the law and prophets. Love. Love God. Love neighbor. We aren't afraid of punishment. You and I are not afraid of the punishment and condemnation of God. Because we know that he's on our side. We know that he hasn't come to condemn us but to save us. We know that he's perfecting us in his love. That he's justified us. That he's working and sanctifying us. And we know that that process is hard. Because killing sin in us is painful and hard. But this is God's work. God is refining us. He's revealing to us our brokenness. And the brokenness around us. Then as we enter into this confession and God's revealed it, we confess that, which leads us to repentance. To then doing something about that. Not just confessing, but changing, which we'll get into next week. Repentance. Love isn't passive. It's not just words. It's by definition active. A God who actively perfects us. Active love leads us to repentance. God's active love for us leads us to turn from making our own image to multiplying God's image. Let us be a church that begins to decreate, to destroy the sin of racism in our lives, in our church, in the community around us. Let us be a church that is anti Racist by loving, by learning, by confessing. Then we will begin to enter into our purpose, which is to glorify God and to multiply His image to the ends of the earth. Let us pray. Gracious.